Chapter Eleven of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eleven, Gertrude Atherton. It was in the Saturday Review, which about ten years ago, in discussing one of Mrs. Gertrude Atherton's novels, borrowed for its caption one of that author's own phrases: "intellectual anarchy." The tone of the article in question was that of incisive irony and unkind cleverness nevertheless this term intellectual anarchy may not unfairly be applied even by stanch admirers of mrs atherton to a large part of her work and may serve conveniently as a sort of condensed explanation both of the degree of success she has achieved and of her failure to gain certain greater heights which seem to have lain so easily within her reach mrs atherton it must be remembered has had abundant opportunity for studying both life and literary methods in great extent and diversity she knows and understands her native land from california which has served as a luminous background for much of her best work clear to the eastern coast to washington the complex social strata of which she has given us in senator north to new york and westchester county that she deftly satirized in patient sparhawk to the adirondacks that formed the setting for the trenchant irony of her aristocrats and on the other hand she has spent a large portion of her recent years in europe imbibing new impressions and methods and also it must be frankly admitted yielding now and again to the temptation of laying in those foreign countries the scenes of several of her literary blunders the net result of mrs atherton's varied experiences and methods of self-training may be summed up as follows that she has an uncommonly broad outlook upon life an enviably rich equipment of material and side by side with these advantages a wilful almost illogical independence a persistent rebellion against the bondage of literary schools in short a riotous freedom of style and construction that is not unfairly stigmatized as intellectual anarchy consequently it is somewhat difficult to do strict justice to mrs atherton's contribution to american fiction somewhat difficult accurately to take the measure of her achievement and while honestly pointing out wherein her shortcomings lie to give her full credit for merits which have made her one of the forces that refuse to be disregarded in contemporary letters in the first place then it is well to get clearly in mind the more obvious elements of strength in mrs atherton's novels she has the big advantage of seeing life with clear-eyed accuracy and without illusions she is no idealist inventing an imaginary world because the world of actuality happens at times to contain much that is sordid and painful on the contrary she faces unflinchingly the unpleasant truths of physical baseness and moral obliquity mirroring them back with a fearlessness that compels recognition even from those who shrink from the naturalistic method it is of course always rash to hazard a guess as to the source of any author's manner of procedure but in the present case one ventures with little fear of contradiction the opinion that mrs atherton owes to the french realistic school her interest in heredity her frank treatment of the physical facts of life and her unusually wise understanding of the complex relation in all big human emotions and impulses between the flesh and the spirit and the impossibility of saying that hate and love jealousy and self-sacrifice can ever be purely physical or purely psychic in their origin she is right in constantly insisting upon the blending of the two in all the relations of men and women and upon her fearless treatment of problems of sex rests her best title to be considered an important factor in fiction 
with the possible exception of the author of pigs in clover she is the only woman now writing in english who is able to handle questions of sex with a masculine absence of self-consciousness and consequently with an absence of morbid exaggeration but on the other hand mrs atherton has not acquired along with a continental frankness of speech certain other qualities that are equally essential to the highest type of art namely a subtle nicety of construction an appreciation of a finished technique it is an inevitable consequence of her whole nature her rugged independence her refusal to be hampered by technicalities of the art her fearless brushing aside of any arbitrary barrier standing between her and the way in which she happens for the moment to feel like writing a particular story that almost without exception her books suffer from a faulty technique almost without exception we feel that the basic idea behind each of them the skeleton structure upon which they were reared was worthy and capable of a development considerably beyond that which she finally achieved it needs no very great critical acumen no special experience in the art of story construction to realize that in all of mrs atherton's books there is a large proportion of episode that is not vital to the development of the central theme that there are a certain number of minor characters devoid of real structural importance that there are frequently secondary themes interwoven with the central one which constitute what might in the hackneyed phraseology of mr kipling be accurately designated as another story and in some cases these secondary themes these subordinate characters which might have become structurally important if carried through to the final chapter suddenly drop out of sight midway through the book leaving us impotently wondering why they were introduced at all indeed one of the most obvious faults of mrs atherton's special brand of realism is that she imitates too freely nature's inscrutable way of injecting into the intimate dramas of human life a multitude of apparently irrelevant details it is of course a common everyday experience to find all sorts of sordid and paltry interruptions from the outside world heedlessly intruding upon our intimate joys and sorrows but there is no hard and fast rule ordaining the invariable occurrence of such interruptions and the finer technique of fiction demands that their intrusion shall be reduced to a minimum otherwise the main issue the vital thing that the novelist has to say runs the risk of becoming blurred perhaps of being lost to sight altogether one of the axioms of literary criticism is that an author shall be judged not merely by what he has done but also by what has been the nature of his intention the initial difficulty that lies in the way of fairly judging mrs atherton is that it often becomes difficult to conjecture just what she really has intended to do in several of her books as we shall have occasion presently to observe in detail she has apparently had in mind that epic breadth of subject and of treatment which characterizes the best work of frank norris robert herrick ellen glasgow and david graham phillips a big national problem filling the whole background of the canvas and against it some sharply defined personal tragedy thrown out in bold relief in the middle of the picture this at least one feels she has tried to accomplish but she has fallen short of the accomplishment the close connection between the general and the special theme a connection that is vital to the achievement of any epic whether in prose or in verse is either wanting altogether or else too weak to fulfil its purpose one sees or rather half suspects a number of symbolic characters and episodes planned apparently to develop and accentuate the epic scheme but they are either abortive or else so obscure that one hesitates to venture an opinion as to what the author's intent really was feeling moderately certain that if consulted she would probably declare that she had no such intent at all 
altogether the literary methods of mrs atherton may be summed up briefly as extraordinarily variable and arbitrary and nevertheless perhaps indeed for this very reason at times undeniably effective it would be difficult to find in the whole range of english fiction another writer of such uneven quality another writer whose best pages are separated from her worst by so wide a gap whose strongest scenes are so vastly superior to her weakest whose style at one time is so exceedingly good and at others so exasperating to an ear that is sensitive to style mrs atherton when at her best is delightful in her ability to make us see her picturings of old california which forms the background of so large a part of what must be recognized as her best work possess an artistic charm a sensuous richness of colour and at the same time a discreet self-restraint that constitute a delight to the ear and to the mental vision mrs atherton at her worst lets her pen run riot in a blare of words until the printed paragraph shrills onward and upward into a painful and hysterical shriek contrast for instance the following brief paragraphs taken almost at random from her earlier writings Quote, carmel river sparkled peacefully beneath its moving willows the blue bay murmured to the white sands with the peace of evening close to the little beach the old mission hung its dilapidated head through its yawning arches dark objects flitted mould was on the yellow walls from yawning crevice the rank grass grew only the tower still defied elements and vandals although the wind whistled through its gaping windows and the silver bells were no more the huts about the church had collapsed like old mussels but in their ruins still whispered the story of the past and in sharp contrast with the art of a delicate vignette like the above compare such a riot of words and thought as the following as she reached the sidewalk a squall caught and nearly carried her off her feet she cursed aloud she let fly all the maledictions english and spanish of which she had knowledge she raised her voice and pierced the gale the furious energy of her words hissing like escaping steam she raised her voice still higher and shrieked her profane arraignment of all things mundane in a final ecstasy of nervous abandonment it is this tendency to vociferate a little too shrilly this inability to sustain the key that suddenly has the effect of letting a whole scene drop from grim reality into something akin to melodrama in spite of this mrs atherton compels admiration for her unwavering independence her splendid strength when she is at her best and for the rich glow and passion of pulsing life that she injects into the printed page and that she undoubtedly would fall short of attaining with a less rugged and better disciplined style a brief analysis of certain representative volumes will make clearer the scope and the limitations of mrs atherton's attainments to discuss in detail every one of the score of volumes which she has put forth during nearly as many years would not only be impracticable but would seriously blur the resulting impression but if we select let us say such volumes as the californians patience sparhawk senator north rulers of kings and ancestors we shall have an easily manageable group that admirably shows her range of power her chief interests in the problems of modern social life as well as her methods and her errors of technique of mrs atherton as a short story writer there seems no need to speak specifically the splendid idle forties with its kaleidoscopic pictures of the life of old california a life already vanishing into the realm of forgotten things has a quality that refuses to be disregarded a quality of exotic beauty an elusive fragrance a strange mingling of pride and passion and languor 
yet the most that can be said of it is that it shows more of promise than of fulfilment and that the best that it contains is to be met with again worked out with a surer touch in her longer california novels it is a little rash in the case of a novelist whose interests in life are so broad as mrs atherton's and whose point of view is so cosmopolitan to attempt to find some unifying principle some common keynote serving to harmonize her work as a whole and yet in mrs atherton's case such an attempt may be made with less danger than in the case of many of her contemporaries of being accused of a far-fetched artificial interpretation no one can read her books without being aware of the keen interest she has always taken in the spread of the modern democratic movement in our political social and moral attitude toward life and still more keenly is she concerned with the inevitable conflict constantly in progress between this younger stronger democratic movement and the inherited prejudices of an older aristocratic conservatism most of all she has chosen again and again with many minor variations to study the struggle of a young woman striving to readjust herself to the new order of things trying to conquer her own heredity to put aside the conventions in which she has been nurtured and to live her own life in independence and liberty this is the dominant note of senator north in which betty madison's long fight for happiness is the direct outcome of rebelling against the traditions of her family the iron-bound prejudices of her mother numbering themselves among the oldest and most exclusive families in washington they have made it their boast that no politician has ever been received within their doors betty in the prime of splendid young womanhood overrules her mother's wishes seeks the acquaintance of representatives and senators frequents the gallery of the senate chamber establishes a salon in which politics is the prevailing topic and to the destruction of her peace of mind falls in love with senator north realizing only too late that she has given her heart to a man already married the same note although not quite so insistent makes itself heard in the californians magdalena yorba is the daughter of a spanish father and a new england mother she is perpetually at war with herself constantly suffering from the clash between spanish pride and new england conscience between passive acceptance of that obedience to convention which the women of her father's house had always shown and that inborn sense of the individual right to live one's own life in one's own way which came to her through generations of puritan blood the particular way in which she asserts this independence seems not especially momentous in itself nor even vital to the structure of the story but it serves to keep before us her ineffectual spirit of revolt magdalena unlike the other girls of her social class has a restless brain thirsting for knowledge and for an opportunity to achieve and to create her secret ambition is to become an author but to don roberto yorba for a daughter of his house to essay to write is in itself an offence while to publish a book and allow her name to appear in print would be shame unspeakable the main theme of the story is only loosely connected with that of the girl's secret longing for a novelist's fame but it does have to do very distinctly with the repressed conditions under which magdalena has matured conditions that have handicapped her for the inevitable social game and make it possible for another girl reared in greater freedom to intervene and rob her of the man she loves patient sparhawk fits in less well to the prevailing scheme of mrs atherton's books but at least it is the story of a young woman's struggle against heredity against the evil impulses bequeathed her by her mother the degradation of her mother's memory and in the later development of the book we get to some extent the clash between the exclusive class and the democracy when patient sparhawk 
wrongly accused of the murder of her husband fights a losing battle for her life in court in the public press and even at the hands of the state governor partly because the evidence looks black against her but also as mrs atherton makes us feel because she is an aristocrat suffering judgment at the hands of the masses rulers of kings and ancestors among mrs atherton's later volumes are two books which it is most enlightening and salutary to study side by side for they reveal her respectively at her worst and at her best rulers of kings is a preposterous book a book of opera bouffe pure and simple a book of genius seemingly gone mad and running amuck through the palaces of europe ruthlessly trampling on the divine rights of kings and caricaturing the reigning monarchs in the spirit of a sunday supplement cartoonist it is distinctly depressing to have been under the necessity of reading so bad a book and what makes it not merely depressing but irritating as well is the conviction that mrs atherton is perfectly well aware of what she has done and that she has done it deliberately after much careful thought for the benefit of readers who may not happen to have read rulers of kings it may be worth while very briefly to state the sum and substance of it the book opens with the following paragraph quote, when fessenden abbott heard that he was to inherit four hundred million dollars he experienced the profoundest discouragement he was ever to know except on that midnight ten years later when he stood on a moonlit balcony in hungary alone with the daughter of an emperor and opened his contemptuous american mind to the deeper problems of europe a man equipped with a contemptuous american mind and four hundred million dollars may be relied upon to make some stir in the world fessenden abbott's special way of getting into mischief is to fall in love with an austrian princess the daughter of the emperor franz joseph renata by name whom you will search for in vain in the almanac de gotha for the simple reason that mrs atherton invented her for the occasion now if there is one court in europe that is more than any other a stronghold of the divine right of kings it is that of the hapsburgs the one court where the marriage of a princess with an american is not merely a thing forbidden but simply unthinkable inconceivable impossible it is true that just once in the world's history a commoner did precisely this impossible inconceivable thing a dauntless firebrand of a man from corsica had napoleon never really lived and had some audacious novelist of the dumas type invented him conceived his fantastic career his juggernaut progress over the fallen thrones of europe then by rights we might have had a novel entitled to call itself rulers of kings but fessenden abbott with his contemptuous american mind is sadly out of his element when we listen to his stolen interviews with renata we wonder whether he is not a petty clerk who has taken his employer's daughter for a sunday outing to coney island frankly princesses do not talk that way what happens in mrs atherton's story is this fessenden abbott possesses the rights to an invention which makes future warfare an impossibility it is an explosive which starts in motion deadly whirlwinds that simply sweep out of existence any armed force venturing to stand in the way fessenden will sell his invention to germany and austria in exchange for france joseph's daughter then as he points out these two powers can declare war upon russia and the east and wipe them out of existence but if his offer is refused he will instead sell the invention to russia and to quote his ultimatum to france joseph when austria is a province of russia your daughter will be the first prisoner set free the emperor's face turns purple and his heavy habsburg mouth trembles but he capitulates and his daughter marries the american with the paternal blessing 
the only point of spending so much space upon this literary blunder is to show that here as elsewhere mrs atherton has the obsession of a triumphant democracy riding roughshod over europe's proudest aristocrats in contrast to this it is like a breath of ozone to turn to ancestors in which the same general theme is treated not merely with sanity but with a bigness a comprehension a convincing force that make it easily the most important contribution she has yet made to american fiction it is not surprising that she has put into it so much of her best work she is writing not fantastic melodrama about comic opera kings but plain truth about real people whom she may have known personally she is showing sanely and convincingly the manner in which certain almost forgotten strains of heredity will come to the surface and assert their right to a share in working out our destiny and lastly she is picturing how the magic glamour of california may react upon a conservative englishman and little by little make a new man of him until he ends by proving himself a better american than the californians themselves it is a big book undeniably a book of almost epic sweep a book whose power and value are likely in a measure to be missed if we do not realize that the protagonist is not jack gwynne the americanized englishman nor isabel otis the california girl who wins his love but the city of san francisco which dominates the book like a regal and capricious heroine and whose hour of agony by earthquake and by fire closes the volume with the shadow of a cosmic tragedy nevertheless even ancestors is faulty in technique mrs atherton was on the right track as she had been many times before san francisco the gateway of the west the big and splendid symbol of american liberty dominating the whole volume and against this spectacular background a little group of individual lives handicapped by a complex heredity slowly and bravely working their way to freedom and to happiness why the book is built on a plan of zolaesque magnitude and boldness the trouble is that the two themes the general and the specific are not closely enough correlated that many of the episodes which take place in san francisco might just as well have been enacted elsewhere and that even the tremendous final chapter picturing the devastation of the great earthquake is not a structural necessity not a solution of any problem nor a rounding out of the specific human story the latter has been amply solved in an earlier chapter and the earthquake is merely like the last piece played by the orchestra after the curtain has been rung down and the audience is filing out one more example of what may be called slovenly technique is to be noted in one of the books already discussed senator north apparently mrs atherton had in mind in this case also a volume of epic breadth with washington and the whole scheme of national politics as the big dominant general theme and the love of an ardent young woman for one of the nation's lawmakers as the specific and individual point of interest but here again the relation between the two themes is too loosely knit we hear a good deal about political life we frequent the houses of congress the homes of diplomats the motley gatherings of public functions but after all the specific human interest of the book the old old story of a woman bravely fighting against her love for a married man is independent of the political background independent of party lines independent even of the cuban war with which the book concludes as a story of two human lives it would have been essentially the same had the setting been laid in no man's land outside of time and space there is however one subordinate story interwoven in senator north which if it could have been made into a book apart would have been an almost flawless bit of technique 
this is the story of betty madison's half-sister harriet the illegitimate daughter of her father and an octoroon harriet is practically a white woman but for a scarcely perceptible blueness at the base of her fingernails the secret of her birth is well kept and eventually she marries betty's cousin a southerner full of the pride of blood and race the secret might have come out in any one of a dozen ways but the way in which it does come out is structurally perfect white though she is harriet inherits certain strains of negro temperament among others the sort of religious fervour that finds vent in revival meetings loud hallelujahs and gospel songs and one night when she returns from a negro camp meeting almost in a religious trance she hysterically confesses to her husband the truth about the one-sixteenth strain of coloured blood too hysterical to foresee that he will inevitably kill himself and that her own suicide is the logical sequel this character of harriet is perhaps the best bit of feminine analysis that mrs atherton ever did and it is a pity that it is buried away in a volume where its importance is unfairly overshadowed by far less vital episodes and now briefly what is mrs atherton's place among the novelists of her time and generation that she is a vital living force cannot be denied that she has won and holds her public is also unquestionable much that she has done is well deserving of the recognition it has received on the other hand there is much in her writings that is indefensible it is well however for the world of letters as a whole in a generation when form and technique are in danger of being raised up as a fetish to have now and then a fearless and untrammelled spirit refusing to be bound by other laws and conventions than those of her own making especially when she justifies herself from time to time by the sheer strength the rugged sincerity of such books as the californians and ancestors it is no bad thing for a nation's literature to be stirred now and again by the sort of intellectual anarchy that is represented by mrs atherton at her best End of chapter eleven